again, and welcome to the Merck Manual's Medical Myths podcast, where we set the record straight on today's most talked about medical topics and questions. I'm your host, Joe McIntyre, and on this episode, we welcome Dr. David Murkison. Dr. Murkison is a clinical professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Texas at Dallas, but we have him on the podcast today to talk about his expertise in dentistry. He has been a practicing dentist for more than 40 years and also spent more than 30 years in the Air Force doing comprehensive dentistry and a lot of dental education, as he says. He is also a professor at the Texas A&M College of Dentistry in the Department of Orthodontics and the Department of Comprehensive Dentistry. Dr. Murkison, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Joe. Looking forward to it. Now, many of us, or all of us ideally, should have some experience in visiting a dentist sometime in our lives or from one reason or the other. But as you told me before we started recording, Dr. Murkison, we shouldn't just see our dentist only when our teeth hurt or only when they're bothering us. Can you explain why that is and how often we should be seeing our dentists? Well, Joe, dentistry has really prided itself uh, on uh, being a, a profession that really practices prevention. And so in order to prevent, you need to go in even when your teeth aren't hurting. Um, it allows for uh, a clinical examination, first of all, uh, because we're not only looking at cavities in the teeth or gum diseases, we'll speak about a little bit later, but any growths or tumors or unusual findings that we can find. And, and again, prevention works best when you find things early. And so, you know, a, a preventive practice in, in dentistry is the best way to go. And so uh, if you've waited uh, until the teeth start to hurt, that usually means that uh, it has progressed to the point that some intervention is, is going to be necessary, whereas, especially with gum disease and, and gingivitis, just a little bit of uh, hygiene, uh, tweaking, a little bit of uh, better cleansing of the, of the oral cavity uh, will certainly help and, and can reverse gingivitis. And in some cases these days, even reverse very small, what we term um, small enamel white lesions, which is just a little bit of demineralization. And so you can actually prevent cavities uh, by the application of some topical fluoride or some fluoride varnishes or very, very small dental restorations uh, before they get large and actually cause the teeth to hurt. Now, you mentioned gum disease there. You know, I think this is something we've seen or heard of uh, for a long time. Is gum disease something that's rare, not something necessarily that people need to worry about, or is it more common than people think? Much more common than, than, than people think, and, and uh, gum disease actually, in, in most of the Western uh, world and, and, and really probably across boundaries, is by far the leading cause of uh, tooth loss after, say, the age of, you know, late 20s, uh, mid-30s or so. And it has to do with the loss of bone that accompanies periodontal disease, periodontitis, which is an inflammatory disease. And, and so gum disease is not rare. In fact, it's a, a very, very common occurrence. As I said before, as we age, it becomes the most common cause for the loss of teeth. Now, I have seen some fodder online that says gum disease may not just be a concern only for your mouth. Is that true? That's very true. Uh, there's been a link between actually gum disease and some cardiovascular problems because it's a disease that is set up with inflammatory aspects. And so inflammatory aspects from cytokines and, and, and other kind of localized uh, that can become systemic effects it can actually uh, set up as a, as a potential for cardiovascular problems. The, the second thing is it's exacerbated 
by specific systemic problems. And so if somebody has a compromised immune system by, say, something like diabetes, leukemia, uh, it advances the progression of the periodontal disease or the periodontitis or the gum disease. And so um, all of these things need to be taken into account, and that's why your dentist takes a very thorough medical history as well as doing a clinical evaluation when you go in for your annual examinations. So one myth that we've also seen a lot online, and I'm sure uh, many of us have heard sometime or another when we were kids, is that chewing sugar-free gum can be either a substitute for flossing or, you know, a worst-case scenario, a substitute for brushing your teeth. I'm assuming that's not the case, but can you explain why? No, certainly not. Now, sugar-free gum is, is certainly preferable to sugared gums. Uh, because it doesn't allow the oral bacteria to feed on the sugars, and, and they can be glucose or sucrose or all kinds of, of the sugars that break down to cause acids that actually are the cause of, of tooth decay. Sugar-free gum uh, is not a uh, substitute for flossing because it doesn't reach those especially hard-to-reach areas, which are between where the teeth meet each other or what are known as dental contacts. And uh, that's where food debris and plaque tends to collect. And so the flossing is able to, to go in there, remove those bacterial colonies, which are dental plaque. And the flossing can get in there where gum cannot get in uh, between the teeth. Now, along that same vein, are diet sodas technically better for your teeth because they don't have sugar in them? They are, uh, but again, uh, everything in moderation. Diet sodas, uh, because they have saccharins or uh, sucralose or other different kinds of uh, artificial sweeteners in them as opposed to sugars, they don't feed the bacteria. But the, the problem is they're carbonated and they're acidic. And so it's the acids that tend to work as well. And so we see a lot of people, when I was in the Air Force, we had a lot of people that had jobs where they either had to listen in for a long time or they were monitoring uh, things. And, you know, they sat there with a, uh, uh, a carbonated beverage, a, a soda, a cola, and they were sipping on those all day. And it has to do with the acids working on those teeth all day long. And uh, it's the same thing if you have sugar in your coffee and, uh, you know, you're sipping on the, on the coffee all day long. And so it's an exposure duration and your saliva just can't buffer it for that long. And so those people tend to have a lot of dental cavities uh, because they have acids working on the teeth all day. So it's not only sugar that's the cause of tooth decay, but it's acids, carbonation, and sugar that combine to cause this issue. Correct. And, and again, especially for people, let's say, you know, a medically compromised person that has uh, had some kind of uh, head and neck cancer that has gone through radiation and the radiation has diminished or completely taken away their um, saliva flow. Uh, those people are at high risk for dental cavities. And uh, it's because there's no buffering effect that's left in, in the saliva. The saliva also contains some semblance of fluorides. And so, uh, again, saliva buffers that. But if you're continually challenging that with a very low pH uh, carbonated beverage, uh, you know, a sugar-contained beverage as well that forms the acids from the bacteria, um, you're going to overcome the, the protective aspects of the saliva and, and the fluoride that you use in your toothpaste and start to have those, uh, those demineralized areas that form cavities. Whether you're a parent or a seasoned professional, a medical student or a caregiver, 
the Merck Manuals has the right medical information in the best format. And it's always free, easy to access, and readily available for you. Let's talk a little bit about how we can prevent some of those cavities. One main key aspect of that, I'm sure, is brushing your teeth. Uh, now, when it comes to brushing your teeth, does it matter what time of day uh, you, you do brush your teeth? Every dentist, I think, will recommend you know, brushing after meals, and that helps to remove you know, food debris as well as uh, break up the bacterial colonies, the plaque that's in your teeth, but certainly uh, in the morning, uh, after, uh, before or after breakfast, depending on what you uh, prefer, and then right before you go to bed at night, at least those two times a day, twice a day brushing, uh, will break up that dental plaque that we were talking about. That's the bacterial colonies that harbor those bacteria that can cause both the gum problems, the, the periodontitis or the gingivitis, as well as the uh, dental cavities, the, the dental caries there. And so by breaking up those cavities, you're able to do that. Now, I've always been told growing up that I should have a soft bristle toothbrush, but you would think uh, that having hard bristles may be more likely to remove some of that plaque and debris that's in your teeth. Is that not actually the case? No, that's exactly um, <laughs> that's exactly opposite. The, the hard bristles have been shown to really cause a lot more damage, and uh, the, the soft bristles two aspects. One, they're not as abrasive when, when you're using it with the toothpaste. And, and that's what you're doing is the bristles themselves are, are taking the abrasive portions along with uh, the sudsing portion, which is a sodium lauryl sulfate. It's kind of a detergent in, in our mouth. But in, in terms of actually um, the toothbrush bristles themselves, the soft bristles get up under the uh, gum tissue, remove the plaque better. The hard bristles tend to be more abrasive and they don't splay or move in under that uh, the gum tissue as well. They can also cause damage to the gums. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to cause any recession, which is a, you know, an actual moving of the gum tissue away because of either a habit, you know, a toothbrush um, habit that's too hard or a fingernail habit or, uh, you know, somebody has a bobby pin or something like that that they use. And so uh, there are a lot of pernicious habits that hurt as well. But uh, hard bristles are not good. Soft bristles are good, and especially for children. Now, you mentioned brushing hard. Uh, is there a recommended pressure that someone should use when brushing their teeth to avoid brushing too hard and causing some of that recession that you mentioned? Joe, what you really don't want to do is just a back-and-forth motion. It's more of a rotary or kind of a um, roundabout motion um, at about a 45-degree angle toward the, the gum tissue, and that allows for those bristles to move up into what's known as the sulcus, the gingival sulcus, which is the little space between the gum and uh, its attachment to the tooth there. And so uh, by doing kind of a uh, back-and-forth motion as opposed to a uh, tremendous amount of, of uh, brushing hard and a straight for, uh, force, uh, by using that rotational motion, the circular type of motion, you're able to remove a lot more of the plaque and you don't cause the same kind of problems with the enamel. Now let's switch over to something that people look up online, whether it's in the Merck manuals or just simple searches online all the time, this idea of how to make their teeth whiter. Everybody wants to make their teeth whiter. We've seen 
Remedies such as lemon juice on your teeth, charcoal, coconut oil, are any of these quote-unquote natural remedies helpful for whitening your teeth, or are they quite exactly the opposite and actually damage your teeth? Lemon juice specifically, um, and, and we actually see a lot of that down in Texas. Um, there are cultures that uh, tend to actually suck on lemons, and you get a lot of acidic erosion of the enamel of the tooth. The enamel is made of calcium and phosphates, uh, a material called hydroxyapatite. And the, the problem is when you have a very acidic material like citric acid that comes from lemon juice or oranges and things like that, it actually erodes as an erosive agent for the enamel of the teeth, and we see a lot of the enamel loss. Um, uh, you mentioned charcoal that has not been shown as being as efficient in removing the plaque of the teeth and secondly doesn't have the addition of fluoride which is really really important from a preventive standpoint the last thing that you mentioned coconut oil is, is used again in other cultures uh, specifically known as a, a pulling technique where uh, you uh, place coconut oil in your mouth and then swish and try to move it between the teeth there uh, to try to help remove the dental plaque. The problem is uh, most of that requires 10 to 15 minutes of swishing your mouth. Well, you know, I've had children, now I have grandchildren, trying to get them to brush their teeth for five seconds, much less 10 or 15 minutes of this uh, pulling, uh, it's very, very difficult. And so uh, I can tell you the American Dental Association has no research that shows that there is a preventive aspect or a better aspect from the coconut, um, the use of coconut oil alone. And certainly uh, as an adjunct, they haven't shown that it's detrimental, but uh, brushing and flossing twice a day with fluoridated toothpaste um, is the recommendation from the American Dental Association. Is it true that when your teeth are whiter, they're healthier? They're not healthier, Joe, but what they have done is uh, removed organic stains. And so these are the stains that come from coffee, wine, different kind of uh, fruits and, and vegetables, uh, beets and things like that. And so uh, the hydrogen peroxide actually removes those stains. It's a transient kind of thing. It's, it's temporary. It lasts for a little while. Um, and certainly uh, there are some techniques also if you go to a dentist and uh, they do an in-office bleaching, some of the dehydration that happens to the teeth will make them appear brighter as well. But uh, these are, are relatively safe. Again, um, you know, moderation is the key. And so uh, if you bleach, uh, either a home bleaching or an office bleaching regimen that's followed uh, in the recommendation from the manufacturer's materials, uh, you can whiten those teeth. But again, it's a, it's a transient kind of thing. And to keep that same whiteness, you're going to have to either change your diet, uh, you know, away from a lot of different things, or get this done on a periodic basis. Now, we've talked about the importance, obviously, of brushing your teeth. Uh, can you get a little bit into flossing, why it's valuable, why it's important, and how it helps us remove some of that plaque that brushing may miss? Flossing um, gets between the teeth, and it gets under the gum tissue, and uh, when done correctly, it breaks up the bacterial plaque, and so they don't have the chance to colonize down there. And uh, for cavities, by breaking up the bacteria, they haven't had time to demineralize the enamel of the tooth. 
And so, again, they have to take in sugars, take in different starches and things to break them down into acids that cause the dental cavities. And so the, the floss just breaks them up and then allows, uh, again, in use in conjunction with brushing, the removal of that dental plaque. And so uh, by using flossing, uh, by having the dentist go down and remove some of the um, calculus or the tartar, which is the harder deposits of the teeth, you've removed some of the nooks and crannies also that uh, tend to form down there. So by preventing that calculus or the tartar, the, the floss, again, is removing the plaque so it doesn't harden to form an area, again, that then those... Uh, anaerobic bacteria can form underneath to actually cause the progression from gingivitis to periodontitis or the gum disease. We've seen this a lot online. I'm sure it's not not necessarily true, but I want, I want it to come from your mouth. Does flossing create spaces between your teeth? Flossing does not create the spaces of the teeth. What usually happens is uh, we get drifting of the teeth, and this is especially prevalent in uh, patients that have severe periodontal disease and they lose bone support and and the teeth start to move and and specifically in ways that the mouth tends to function and so as you uh, move your lower jaw forward or a protrusive kind of movement it can actually work on those upper front teeth and you start to form some spaces in there so flossing is not the cause of that it's the loss of bone now, it can be easy when someone is flossing to see some blood maybe in their spit when they're cleaning out their mouths. Is that a reason to stop flossing or if you're brushing your teeth and you see blood to stop brushing? The blood is showing that there's an inflammatory process going on. And so the body reacts to inflammation uh, in a couple of different ways. It sends uh, more blood supply there to uh, send some of the kind of white blood cells and lymphocytes and things uh, that tend to fight inflammation. And so, first of all, you start to get uh, a redder looking area, and that's why gingivitis tends to have some red gums. Uh, you tend to have uh, edema or a swelling in that area, and so the gums tend to be swollen as well. And then finally, uh, if left long enough, you can actually get little abscesses in there, and so you can actually get some purulence or some pus coming out of those areas, and that, again, is usually an indication that periodontal disease has started with the loss of bone associated with that as well. If it's kept in gingivitis, again, so if it's bleeding, that shows you need to spend a little more time not brushing harder, but a little more thorough to remove the bacteria. And you'll see that with continued flossing in that area and continued brushing, taking a little bit more time, and if necessary, having the teeth cleaned to remove any of the tartar or the calculus in that area, you'll see the, the bleeding uh, finally reduce and then hopefully go away. Now, speaking from personal experience, a few years ago, I switched to sensitive toothpaste, sensitive teeth toothpaste, uh, because I was dealing with some sensitivity in my teeth. Is tooth sensitivity only a result of enamel loss? Joe, actually not. Um, it can be associated with enamel loss, but it is often associated with a little bit of gingival recession. And so it tends to be just as uh, the patients are moving from, say, the late 20s to the 30s to the 40s, and you're starting to get a little bit of gingival recession or the gum tissue moving down toward the root of the tooth. And where the enamel and the cementum meet there, uh, if you have an aggressive brushing style, 
if you've uh, had a cavity in that area, or more frequently, if you tend to have uh, what are known as abfraction lesions where you've formed kind of a V-shaped area where you've lost some of the cementum um, due to some um, motion of the tooth, some flexing of the tooth in that area, you've now exposed dentin. And dentin is a vital structure underneath both the enamel and the cementum and it's made up of little tubules and those tubules are what cause the sensitivity because they are fluid filled and the movement of that fluid stimulates some nerves that are down near the nerve of the tooth itself now about 10 percent of the population is born with a gap between the enamel and the cementum and so if you happen to be one of that 10 percent uh, as soon as you get a little bit of gingival recession, when you drink some iced tea or you drink something sweet or you drink something very hot, it causes that stimulation of the dentin. And so there are a couple of different ways to handle that. You can put a restoration on that that's invasive. Uh, you can apply a desensitizing agent, which works for a little while. Or you can use, as you just spoke about, a desensitizing toothpaste. And most of those contain uh, potassium nitrate uh, within a toothpaste or some types of gels. Uh, some bleaching agents even have some potassium nitrate to try to reduce tooth sensitivity. But uh, by using that, it actually acts at the source of the nerve near uh, that tooth. But the thing is, it takes a certain amount and a certain amount of time of that uh, sensitivity toothpaste. And so if you go to the dentist and they recommend that and you ask for that because of tooth sensitivity, they'll usually say give it four to six weeks because it takes time for the actual activity of the potassium nitrate to work on the nerves themselves. All right, as we kind of wrap up here, uh, Dr. Murkison, uh, I want to talk about wisdom teeth. I had my wisdom teeth taken out probably around four years ago, relatively painless procedure and, and no issues afterwards. Can you explain to our listeners why people get their wisdom teeth out and what maybe some of those reasons would be? It's a individual call for each patient. Uh, so uh, you'll be interested to know, Joe, that wisdom teeth tend to be uh, the teeth that tend to be missing at birth for quite a few people. And so some people never have any wisdom teeth or they're missing one or two or sometimes all four but they're the most commonly uh, missing teeth. And so, uh, you know, wisdom teeth aren't required, you know, for you to be wise. Uh, they're, uh, I, I don't even know where, uh, you know, that moniker <laughs> came from. Um, but uh, wisdom teeth are third molars, basically. And actually, you'll find that sometimes wisdom teeth don't have to be taken out. Sometimes patients have had orthodontics in the past and they've lost bicuspids uh, as the orthodontist has moved the teeth around and they'll have room in their mouth for those wisdom teeth. Some people have large enough jaws that the wisdom teeth can come in and not be covered by a portion of the gum tissue back there or cause any kind of chronic inflammatory process back there. Unfortunately, for many people, the wisdom teeth come in at an angle and so they're never gonna erupt. And so they cause at that point in time, a, a real uh, potential problem by potentially being trouble to the tooth in front of them, the second molars, which we really need for chewing efficiency. And so if the dentist or the oral surgeon that is evaluating the patient for removal of the wisdom teeth decides that the angle of these teeth their position is going to become a problem or if the tooth is never going to erupt and there'll be a continuous 
inflammatory process and potentially an infective process back there because bacteria loves to hide under these little flaps of tissue that uh, cover some of the lower wisdom teeth back there. And the problem is the upper wisdom teeth can sometimes bite on that little flap and it's called uh, pericornitis, which is peri around the crown, corona, uh, of, of the wisdom tooth down on the bottom. And so there's a constant kind of inflammatory process down there. And so again, you don't want infection in the mouth and that's what can happen over time. So if you maintain wisdom teeth in your mouth, you need to be evaluated over time with dental x-rays that show that tooth to make sure that nothing is being stirred up by uh, having that tooth remain within the bone over time. Now, I'm sure we've only just touched the tip of the iceberg when it comes to dental questions or dental myths. Uh, We only have about a half hour here. So if someone has a question about uh, a dental issue, a dental question, uh, a myth that they've heard that they want clarified, Dr. Murkison, where should they go for those answers? Well, preferably, Joe, uh, they're asking their dentist as they go see him or her on a uh, six-month or an annual basis uh, uh, to be evaluated. And so, again, the dentist is looking at your specific situation, and so uh, they'll be able to give you your specific answers. But if if they're going online, uh, certainly uh, the Merck Manual has some great dental uh, authors that write uh, the chapters uh, on some of the things that we've talked about today. Uh, they talk about dental emergencies, uh, they talk about uh, periodontal disease, they talk about pediatric dentistry and the eruption of teeth and things like that. So uh, there's a, a plethora of knowledge out there on uh, you know the Merck Manuals at, at uh, MerckManuals.com. Uh, the American Dental Association uh, provides uh, a lot of free information and a lot of the dental manufacturers. So you go to your, um, and, and again, I have Uh, no beholding to any of these manufacturers, but if you go to uh, any of the uh, toothpaste uh, companies that, uh, you know, are are out there that provide oral hygiene, you can uh, get some information about uh, the ingredients in there for whitening your teeth or fresh breath for sensitivity and things like that. But the American Dental Association will provide a lot of information on specific topics, and they use an evidence-based science uh, approach as well. And so a lot of the, quote, myths that are out there, whether it's a material that's used in your mouth, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, some type of uh, potential allergen that's out there, uh, the American Dental Association, it's a great place to see that. Well, Dr. Murkison, thank you again so much for joining us. I think uh, this has been a super helpful conversation. I know I've learned a lot uh, about dental health uh, and how to make sure my teeth are protected and as healthy as possible. Joe, it's been my pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I appreciate you uh, asking me on today. And I'll leave our listeners with something, as we say every time we do at the Merck Manuals. Medical and dental knowledge is power. Pass it on. Thank you so much.